you know, that to have Briella, it was December 1st, 2009. And it was like the moment she came out, it was like God kicked that final brick down and said, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll do if you stay faithful. And she's healthy and she's perfect. And God blessed us with her. But it took a long time for her to get here. And she's a miracle and I'm forever grateful yeah. for her. This episode of Testimony Tuesday. This is Pastor Adam back with you again, and it is a special edition of Testimony Tuesday. This is another one of our Unsung Heroes episodes where we are going to be uh, interviewing a pastor's wife. And we have a very special guest uh, with us who has been on the podcast before, Pastor Nick Half. But we are here to uh, interview his wife, Brian Half. And we're very excited to have both of you guys with us. Say hello and welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, hello. So, hey guys, it's great to have you, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to count you as friends and uh, fellow soldiers of the Lord. So thank you for joining the show, and we're excited to hear a testimony today. I know that you guys are both avid listeners of the podcast, and so thank you for your support over the years. It's been awesome. No problem. Our, our privilege, for sure. <laughs> so... um well, we, we know the short version. Uh, if you have heard the previous podcast of Pastor Nick Half's testimony, uh, we don't want uh, to go have too much crossover there, but uh, obviously we want to hear Ryan's story as well today for this episode of Unsung Heroes. But for those who didn't hear that previous episode, why don't you guys uh, give us a little um, introduction of where you're serving God and how long you've been there and give us the conference style three-minute testimony to start out. Yeah, sure. So um, we are currently in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, we have been here this past June, would make it 10, 10 years. And we were pastoring a church in Wichita Falls, Texas prior to that, and we just felt God uh, releasing us and leading us back to the Midwest. Um, I didn't have any area in mind. Pastor Campbell had me praying about military bases. There is one in Dayton, and uh, God so directed us very specifically to Cincinnati. And uh, we've been here, like I said, 10 years and having a great time. Uh, Cincinnati is an awesome city, lots of sinners, lots of need, um, great people. Um, we are originally from Ohio, northern part of Ohio. So I guess you could say we're kind of back home, even though we're four um, just about four hours away from our home of record. But Cincinnati is an absolute great city. Here recently in the last three to six months, we've seen uh, a handful of people come in and it's just refreshing because they're young, 18, 19, 20, and uh, 
coming back, getting saved, bringing their friends. Um, we're actually starting a new converts class tomorrow uh, with several of them. And so God has just Asking been breathing be on us. Wanting yeah. To be in ministry. Yeah. One, yeah. one young lady uh, just texted my wife the other day and asked uh, what she could do to help out in the church. She wants to be involved. So um, just God genuinely touching hearts and lives. Uh, and we're extremely humbled uh, that God would use us. Uh, if you, you know, once you hear our testimony, if God can save us and use us, he can use anybody. Amen. And so Ryan, what, what do you, uh, what, what's been your experience there in Cincinnati? How's it been going for you? I really love it here. You know, our whole salvation has been out West. And so coming back to a place with four seasons was a little difficult. The winters, the gray, um, but it just feels right. You know, there's just no other way of, it just feels right. I love it. Amen. Well, let's jump into your story because, uh, uh, again, we, we've heard Pastor Nick's testimony. Uh, he was one of the first, I think, maybe testimony number two on this on this podcast. So uh, if you haven't heard his, you can go back and, and, um, and listen to that. But we want to uh, hear your side of the story, Miss Mrs. Half. And so where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? What was your family life like? So I grew up in Ohio as well. I moved to Southern California as a teenager, but my growing up was in a little town called Vermilion, Ohio. It's right on Lake Erie, real small town. Um, my home life was uh, in from a broken home. My parents divorced when I was about 14, but what's kind of unique about it is it's my mom that left because it's usually, you know, the dad that leaves the family, but it was my mom who actually left. And so I have, I had one older sister and um, I found out when I was 12 that she was actually my half sister. We had different moms. I didn't know that. So there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of um, like instability in my own heart and my family, because it was just like, I was constantly getting rocked with different things, things that I thought were true, then it wasn't and things, you know, and so there was a lot of um, just like I played outside a lot. I lived, I was surrounded by cornfields. I, I would be outside a lot with like our dogs, <laughs> you know, like that was my safe place was being because inside it was just tumultuous and there was a lot of turmoil. So um, my mom left when I was 14 and then my sister ended up moving out. So it was just me and my dad. And um, it was just sad. It was just a sad home. My dad, uh, was very depressed after that. He just kind of shut down. He went to work and came home, didn't really talk. Just, it was just real sad. So you can imagine that left me open to all kinds of influence that, um, you know, took me down that path. Would you, would you say that, um, your dad was leaning too much on you for like emotional support or was Not, he no, like absent? No. No, he, he, there was nothing. It was, he, he got up, he went to work, he came home, he would make dinner, he'd clean up, he'd go to bed, you know, just occasional little bit of conversation here and there. But, um, he was just, I didn't know it at the time, you know, but he, he was heartbroken. It's heartbroken, you know, and I do want to start by saying God restored my relationship with my mom, her, her and I, and my stepdad, gosh, we are so close. I, I couldn't imagine my life without them, but it took a process to get there. But, um, 
at that time we weren't at that place. So it was just, we were just broken. All of us were just broken and kind of, you know, my sister moved out and moved in with her boyfriend. My dad shut down. And then I just discovered, you know, I didn't have any parental supervision, so I could do what I wanted. How, how old were you when, when you discovered these things? I was 14 when, um, when so my mom left and, um, like I said, leading up to my mom leaving, it wasn't a super happy home to begin with. There was a lot of um, just a lot of fear, a lot of um, a lot of discipline um, that was over the top. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I stayed outside with my my mom. My mom raised boxers. So I stayed outside with the with the dogs because that was like the safe place, you know. OK. So yeah, to be kind of emotionally abandoned at age fourteen—that's uh, that's a lot of pressure. So, what what did that lead to in your life? Well, I think for me, it it led to a few things. Now that I'm an adult and I can kind of see why you know I am or was the way I was, and even still, even honestly now, still uh, something you struggle with because it's a familiar spirit. You'll always, in times of struggle, go back to what was imprinted on you and you have to fight that, you know? And so, um, definitely fear of abandonment, fear of not having security, um, not being able to connect with women as far as not, not that I don't have friends, but connecting with, um, fear of like rejection of older women, you know, of, um, you know, when you desperately need that as, as a, as a young girl, you're just becoming a woman. You need to know how to, um, to, just function, you know, when you don't have that, um, just, yeah, it's just a lot of fear, a lot of fear, a lot of rejection, a lot of, you know, why would my mom want to leave? You know, because I'm a mom, I, you would, you'd have to cut my heart out of my chest before I ever walked away from my kids. You know what I mean? So I don't understand, you know, I didn't understand that. And, um, yeah, so it was very difficult. I think always looking for, um, approval, just approval. What kind of uh, community support did you have? Were you connected to like no, I had none. school? I had none. No, no. I mean, at the school, obviously they knew my parents were going through a divorce because there was custody battles and, um, you know, different things like that. And at one point I did go live with my mom in Florida because she had left and gone to Florida. So, you know, I had to, uh, get the school records and, you know, all of that. So they knew what I was going through, but, um, no, there was no. And what kind of spiritual or religious background did you have coming into so, this time? We were um, we were raised like Christmas and Easter only Catholics, so it wasn't you know I, that was it. <laughs> so you, you you didn't really take it seriously then. Sounds like. Um, because I just didn't know. I didn't know, you know, I think I always had a fear of like spiritual things because in Catholicism, you're afraid, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a based out of fear, you know, because of idolatry and things like that. So there's fear attached to it. But, um, yeah, I, I think even looking back though, like I thought of, you know, we thought about this so much, like, I think I always wanted to know Jesus. I always wanted something real. You know, how, how, how do you know that looking back on it? Like, what do you see in yourself at that time that you were well, when I curious, was, if, if not actually seeking him? 
Because when I would just be like outside, even before my parents divorced, just be outside, you know, just, you know, because there was just a lot of really hurtful words spoken in my home. So, you know, going outside was like a refuge to me. And I remember I would pray. I didn't know I was praying to, but I remember I would look up to the sky and I would just wish to be somewhere else, you know, and I didn't even know I was really praying, but you know, like if there's anybody there, please help me, you know, stuff like that. So I think there's, all of us are created with some type of longing to cry out to something, but we just don't know what it is until somebody tells us. That's why evangelism is so important because there's so many people that are just literally crying out to something they don't know because because our, our our souls cry out for Jesus created to do that. Absolutely. Uh, that's also why we're without excuse, like in Romans 1, uh, that God has imprinted his stamp uh, through conscience, through creation. And uh, so that's why we all have a chance to know him. So... Uh, at this critical juncture in your life and, you know, 14, 15 years old, you know, you're often making decisions that are going to have a profound effect on the rest of your life. So what did those decisions look like for you? Well, so my group of friends, there was five of us and all of us were from broken homes. All of us had really little to no parental supervision. So um, my group of five girlfriends that I had, we were, we were very loud. I mean, it's very hard for you to picture this, but we were very loud. We were very mouthy. We were very, um, the ones that were starting the fights, you know what I mean? Just because that's just what we were doing. And so that led us to obviously down the path of drinking and, you know, began to experiment with drugs and things like that. But when we were 16, one of the, one of the girls in our group, she ended up committing suicide and, um, that it just blew us all because we were already all from such shaky emotional states to begin with. And um, that really, I think, all took all of us down different paths. You know, like one of my friends just really began to just every weekend was a new guy, you know, and every, you know, one of my other friends, her and I, uh, we just we just drank all the time and, you know, began smoking weed, just doing drugs, you know, things and um you know, because we all just, we weren't equipped to handle that. You know, none of us had the emotional support to, to get through that. And so, um, yeah. So right after that happened, I, um, so I had grown up with Nick, we went to school together and I knew him, we were friends and, um, uh, he had actually dated my best friend at one time. And so, um, we'd always been kind of within the same friend group, but, um, Right after that, when, when our friend had committed suicide, one of my other friends decided to fix me up with someone from a different city. And she's like, you know, he's, he's fun and, you know, you just, you need a distraction. And um, so he turned out to be in a gang that was affiliated with the Latin Kings within that city that he was from. And he had three kids, you know, so this was her solution as a better, better option for me of what I was going through. So that was a little wild for a while. But um, thankfully, I was able to get out of that situation and actually started dating Nick because he went into the Marine Corps. And, you know, Marines are just good looking dudes. So definitely <laughs> took it up an, another notch from like being friend like he was a Marine. You know what I'm saying? I guess so. Was uh, <laughs> if, if I have my timing right, he was about 19 when he joined the Marines. Was that right? 
Yeah, he he uh, was 19 and because uh, we're about two and a half years apart. So he graduated. He was a year higher than me in high school. He graduated, went into the military. And then my whole senior year, I dated him. And then as soon as I graduated, I moved out to California. Um, so it was a long, long distance dating thing during your last year of high school. Yeah, yeah. And it was crazy because we weren't saved and he was an alcoholic and we were fighting. I mean, I'm talking like glass bottles being thrown, chairs being thrown, like fighting, fighting. And I was one of those I was one of those women that, well, I was a girl at the time, but I would mouth off and start fights because I knew he was right there. And if I couldn't handle it, you know, I would, I would square up to a dude. And if I couldn't handle it, I knew he was right there. So it was just toxic and stupid. It's just stupid. So, um, do do you think that 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 um, that time that you were affiliated, well, by proxy, I guess, with uh, with the Latin Kings, did that that did that have any lasting effect on you? Like, do you think no, that that put a chip on your shoulder or something? Aided with the Latin, it was like a little branch off in in the town that he was in, and he was already like just dealing with like kids and like just all kinds of stuff. So. Um, I wasn't really exposed to his lifestyle. He more came like to my house, came to, uh, into my environment because he was trying to get away from all of the drama that was in his life. And honestly, the last I heard, he was able to get out of that life and, um, you know, kind of not live that way anymore. So it wasn't like, um, wasn't like the gangs that we dealt with when we were, you know, pastoring in Southern California. It wasn't like that. It was so um so that that final year of high school for you when you were um when you were dating by distance and uh and you know trying to figure out who you are it sounds like like where did you find your identity and and how did you deal with that so honestly i don't think i really found my identity till probably years after salvation because i was just so used to I knew how to act to keep people from getting mad or to keep people from blowing up or, and if, and if I didn't, then I would be the one to be that way. You know what I mean? So I think it, it really did take a very long time, but so, you know, through our senior year, my, my senior year, he, his, he was in the military, just constant fighting. When he did come home on leave, it was just constant. It was just so, so dramatic and stressful and just really stupid. And then, um, so he got stationed out in Jacksonville for school. He was only out there for three months. And, uh, I mean, we were like on the phone and we would constantly just fight the whole time, just screaming, you know, cussing at each other. It was just, it was just like that, you know what I mean? Like why bother staying together? But like, we were so bound because we weren't saved, you know, it was like an addiction. And so, um. I remember I had a call one Sunday morning, the barracks, because that was before cell phones. And um, they were like, oh, Corporal Half is, uh, he went to church. And I was like, oh, he went to church. Like, really? Like, that's the excuse he's good because we didn't go to church. You know what I'm saying? And so um, I was like, okay. So waited a few hours and I called back and they're like, oh, he never came back. He's, he's still at church. And so... I'm like, this is impossible, you know? So he finally calls me back like late Sunday night. And I'm like, that's lame. If you're out cheating on me, just just say it, but don't be using church. Like, 
there's so many other excuses you could be using, you know? And he's like, no, really, I, I went to church, I got saved. And I was like, really, all day? You were there all day? And he's like, yeah, there's guys in the church that invite like the single Marines over. And he's like, we have lunch. And he's like, everybody just kind of talks and there's a night service. And I was like, that's such a stinking lie. You know, so they had just, they were heading into a revival. So, you know, I called Monday night and they're like, oh no, he's not here. He's at church, you know? So this was going on. So when he would call me, like that was, I'm like, that was the whole thing is we would just fight because I, you know, who goes to church that much, right? So maybe he really was at church and he really was saved. Yeah, it wasn't like he could snap a picture and text it to you. No, no, no. That was, yeah, this was in 1995. And so, um, so you got a picture of this. She would call the barracks payphone. The payphone would ring. The duty officer would stand up at his desk, turn around because it was behind him, answer it. And it was common for somebody to call the barracks and they would say, yeah, I need corporal half room, whatever room. He'd walk down to the room, knock on the door. My roommates, of course, would be in there. They would say, oh, he's at church or wherever he's at. Of course, they would know where I'm at. And he'd come back down to the payphone. Oh, I guess he's at church. So that, that was modern day technology in 90, 94, 1994, exactly. 95. So, um, so that's all going on. And he's calling me and he's witnessing to me and I'm cussing him out. I don't want to hear about that. You know, I, I don't, I don't. I don't want to hear about that. I don't believe you. So he'd write me letters with scriptures. And so he ended up sending me a tape and I had to call him today because I wanted to make sure it was the right one. He sent me two tapes from the revival that he was at and it was with Marty Carnegie. Oh, and wow. Pastor, Pastor Ron Myers, that's where he got saved. The church was about like 40 people at the time, huh? It was just, yeah, you know, they were just getting that break on the, on the uh, military base. So he sends me tapes and one of them was on the Holy Ghost and Marty Carnegie preaching on the Holy Ghost to a kind of a, an, like a backslidden Catholic, you know, listening to it. And then one was called, I think, Hell is Real or the Reality of Hell, something something along those lines. So um, so he sends me these tapes. He's like, please just listen to them. So I had put in the Holy Ghost one before I went to bed. I was going to listen to it. But before that, let me back up just a little. So after my mom had left, my friends and I started getting into um, playing with Ouija boards. And um, so that opened up some doors, which um, I thank God, even during that time, he protected protected me from becoming like demon possessed and getting really deeply involved. But there were some definitely demonic things that were going on with that to where one night, um, I, we actually, me and my friends actually woke up my dad. It was probably like two in the morning. We were playing with this Ouija board and, um, it, it freaked us out. There was some stuff going on that doesn't, you know, I don't even want to bring up now, but we woke him up and my dad actually took it outside and burned it. And so we knew enough, even not being saved, not being Christians to burn that and get it out. So there was a tremendous spirit of fear in my bedroom all the time. I couldn't sleep. I would literally lay there just still, still, it's, you know, the blanket pulled up and like, don't move. And I would lay there till two, three in the morning and get like maybe two hours of sleep. And then I'd get up and go to school and then work all night, you know? because there were things that were opened up that I didn't know, you know, at the time, cause I wasn't saved. So he sends me this 
tape on the Holy Ghost. He's like, just listen to it. So I put it on. I had never heard any type of preaching like Pastor Marty Carnegie, period. And then on the Holy Ghost, I had no clue what that was. So I remember I had it on. I'm laying in bed and this intense darkness came into my room and fear I could not move. And um, it's still playing. And I remember looking up and the way my bedroom was set up, it opened up into a bathroom. I had a bathroom, but there was just a little tiny like pocket to before the door opened, like a little walkway, not even a walkway, like, you know what I mean? Anyhow, it was in that doorway. I saw a dark figure. It wasn't completely to the ceiling, but it was just about like ceilings are about eight feet. So it had to have been at least seven foot. And I didn't see any a face or specific features, but you could clearly see an outline of, um, you know, something uh, like a, a person type thing. And whatever this thing was, well, we know what it is now, but at the time it, it brought an intense coldness and fear that terrified me. But I remember not even being saved, not, you know, but I remember something in me was like, as long as you keep this tape playing, it won't completely enter the room. So I would, as soon as that, you remember when you had tapes, they would click off at the end. I would immediately like hit rewind and play it again. And that's what I would do. And um, so I don't know that sermon kept that. I mean, it was, a, it was a demon spirit, you know, because of things that had been opened up. But that's why I said, even before I became a Christian, there were, there were times that God protected me. I know he did. I know he did. And um, when I got saved, you know, God really delivered me from uh, one time when we were on base. I believe that same spirit of fear tried to come on us. Do you remember that? We were praying. We were sitting on our bed praying. And um, you saw it too, like kind of a darkness shifted by the, by the bedroom window and our lights blew out. And we both, and I mean, we were on the Marine Corps base, dudes and Marine, we both felt afraid. And then we were like, no, this is a demon spirit. And, um, and we prayed, you know, we prayed, but when I first came out to Southern California, well, that's another story. We'll get to how I got to California. So that happened. <laughs> wow. So, so these couple of tapes that you sent in, and so what, what did you think of them and what, uh, I mean, were you convinced to uh, get saved at that point or you, you I, knew more convincing? Was, I knew something was different. Um, it was definitely very appealing to me because being from the brokenness that I was from, I, I, I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted God. I knew I did. Um, and then just talking to Nick, you know, on the phone, I could see the difference in him. We weren't fighting all the time. Um, we weren't, you know, and then when he came home on leave, it was like, he was different. He, it just, it wasn't the same. And so I knew, so he actually prayed with me on my dad's front porch. I was smoking a cigarette and he told me, um, I had to put out the cigarette or he wouldn't pray with me. And so I was like, let me finish it. Let me finish it. And so he's like, no, you need to put it out. So he actually took it and crushed it, you know, under his, his shoe. And we ended up praying on my dad's front porch and I got saved. So he always tells people that I'm his best convert because I stuck with yeah. him. <laughs> She's been my that. convert and best. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. So, uh, okay. So update our, how, how old are we now? I was 18. Still 18. Okay. I was 18. So, he was 20. He hadn't turned 21 yet. So, so this I was had an eventful year. Yeah. I had just turned 18 
and I just graduated high school and he'd finished school and he was heading out to Southern California. And, um, uh, that was that. So I was working a job. I was managing a bakery and, um, I just became, I didn't, I needed a church to go to. And so I started going to his parents' church and I was a Christian non-denominational church. And I just became evangelistic. I was bringing my friends. I was inviting, like I brought my stepdad with me. He ended up praying and getting saved. Um, because to me, I was like, I've always been kind of a, um, just an extreme kind of like, sometimes I have to pull myself back a little bit because I can get a little, um, overwhelming, but to me, I'm like, this is what I'm doing. And so if I'm doing this, there's no, there's no other option. There's nothing, you know? And so this is what I'm doing. Everybody else needs to be doing it as well. And yeah, so let me, let me pause you real quick. So Adam, I got saved in Jacksonville, Florida. I was there three months, mate, max, maybe flew home. Uh, cause I was getting stationed in California witness to her. She got saved. She has no one to follow up on her, no one to disciple her, no one to, no church, nothing. And, but I don't know if it was impartation of spirit or what, but like when I got saved, it was literally night and day. I literally left the bar, left my entire old life behind, and I just wanted to serve Jesus. And the same thing happened to her. No fellowship church. My parents went to a four square church, ironically, and uh, I had no clue that our fellowship was even a branch from and a break off from. And she started going to the Foursquare Church. The youth pastor's wife tried to follow up on her once or twice. But I mean, she's 18, graduated high school. I was working, a little you know, working too. a full time job. She's a little bit beyond uh, youth group, youth group, you know, but um, but nothing. But she's, you know, evangelizing and everything. And never, no training, never seen it done. So I immediately, when I got saved, I knew like doing the drugs and drinking, like I needed to stop that. So, but the thing I struggled with was smoking. And so I used to smoke just about a pack a day. And I remember I would challenge people, show me in the Bible where it says you can't smoke. You know, it says drunkards should not enter, you know, so I, yeah, I'll stop drinking. But that was kind of a, um, that was kind of a, a hard one for me until one day I was just, it was in December. And, um, so I got saved in August. I don't remember the exact date and it's really a miracle. I can even remember the month considering the life I was living at the time. <laughs> but, um, I got saved in August of 1995 and then, um, it was December. Well, I, you know, went out to California, but that, so I always tell people, cause they think, you know, I, we have, uh, you know, people in our church right now, like they think they have to clean up a little bit before they come. I'm like, just come. Like, seriously, I was in church and I know I was saved and I really believe I would have made heaven my home had something happened, but I was still smoking because I just really didn't think like, well, it's not that bad, you know, because sometimes things take time, you know, other things it's like immediately you just, you get it and you, but then other things like, you know, God has to work some things out of you. And that was, that was one of them and cussing. I had a hard time with that. Uh, somehow. I don't know why that doesn't surprise me, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh hey we i think i had a pretty forked tongue also before uh before salvation but um so so you had a pretty radical transformation despite not having a whole lot of like christian support or um you know a church to to lean on so how do you think that that happened like 
you you had a catholic upbringing so you had a, a sense of morality maybe but like where you where was no. that intensity come from no morals dude none but um i think it was honestly the holy spirit i i had always had I, I don't know how to explain it i really don't know how to explain it i'd always had a desire for god even though i didn't know what it was i was looking for exactly but when I prayed, I remember, and I know like this doesn't happen with everybody. Two times this happened in salvation and when I got filled with the Holy Spirit. But I remember as I prayed, feeling uh, a heaviness lift. It wasn't like a, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't demon possessed, but you know what I mean? Like just an, an intense heaviness lifting and feeling like a flood coming in, just overwhelming. And it was like, I don't ever... I felt safe. I felt peace. I felt, um, I didn't feel fear. And because of that, I, I never wanted to go back to who I was. I, I knew something happened. And, um, and then also like my whole family was upset about it. So like, it was like, even though I was miserable, they liked me better the way that I was, you know? And so I think it was a little bit of a rebellion too. Like, oh, you don't, you don't want me going to church? Well, guess where I'm going to go? Double down. Right, yeah. right. And so um, you don't want me telling you about Jesus? Like, I remember my dad would get mad when I would be like reading my Bible or I'd, you know, have, I'd put on that, man, those Marty Carnegie tapes, I'm telling you, like, I'd put them on and be like, shut that off, shut it off. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I like, you know, that's what I love about God. It's like he saves us, but he gave us our personalities. He gave us our characteristics prior to salvation at birth. So a little bit of stubbornness and a little bit of uh, revolt in the heart when it's used for God is a good thing because her and I are both a little bit stubborn and her and I are both have that little bit of an edge to us to where if you're told no, Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to do it. Um, so that's worked, I think, in my uh, advantage for me and also for her, because like when we got saved, it was just like we wanted to be on the cutting edge. We wanted to be in church. We wanted to, we wanted to be on the front lines for Jesus. And some of that stubbornness, like when the old flesh, the friends, the world would come knocking, like, uh, uh. I'm stubborn. Like I'm would, gonna serve Jesus yeah, it's like, God. It's like I would get, I would get more like mad at it, kind of. Like, no, you're not dragging me back down to that. No way. And so I had bought a, um, a DC Talk free at last tape. Come on, that's the one. <laughs> I would play that over and over. That was all I would listen to, like every single day on my way to work. I just that was all I listened to. That and, that and Jesus Freak. Jesus Freak. And then he bought me a Carmen tape, like uh, the absolute best of Carmen. I'll tell you what, I would have like emotional moments listening to Lazarus come forth, like in the champion. Oh my gosh. Like that's Satan what bite the dust. That's, yes. That's what made me saved. I mean, as corny as that sounds, when that's all you have and you don't have like a Christian community around you, you don't really have a church, you know. Like Carmen and DC talk <laughs> kept me saved. That's right. That those were the good old days right there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, so you guys had been high school sweethearts since how how long? How how long had that been a thing? 
Um, well, like I said, we were friends for years. I started dating him my senior year. So, um, yeah, he was already, uh, yeah. so when he witnessed to you and you got saved and, mm -hmm. uh, did that, did that put, uh, the idea of marriage like front and center for you guys? Um, not for me. I mean, I'll tell you when we get to it, the whole, like why we got married wasn't a big romantic thing. Our 30th anniversary is coming up in a couple of years. He needs a do-over big time. Ooh, shots <laughs> yeah. fired. Watch out, buddy. Yeah, it was, it was really very, very unromantic. Um, well, we got to get to how I got to California and stuff. Yeah, looking, looking back at where we were at and our salvation and where life was taking us, it just kind of... Fell, in, fell into yeah. our lap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so so he's getting stationed in uh, Southern California. Was that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, and so so you're going to make a decision whether to stay or to follow, and how does that go? So he got stationed in uh, El Toro. The base is now uh, currently closed, but uh, it's Orange County, in between uh, uh, Los Angeles and San Diego. You know, just right in the middle, um, about what an hour north of Oceanside. And so uh, he goes out there, you know, part of his testimony, he was trying to find a church and he ended up in Chula Vista, which was almost two hours away, right on the border. So um, he's going to church there and uh, he gets there September, October, November. So he's like, I'm going, he got uh, orders to Japan. He was leaving uh, for Japan in February. And so he said, I'd like for you to come out and experience our fellowship. So he had talked to the pastor that was there at the time. And he said, yeah, bring her out. She can stay at our house, you know, for a couple months. And then when you go to Japan, she can, you know, go back home, whatever. And so um, he bought me a ticket and it was the beginning of December. And so I quit my job. I told my parent, you know, my, my, uh, my mom had moved back from Florida by that time, was living back in Ohio. And, uh, but I was still living with my dad. So I told him, oh, I'm going to go out and visit. And they're both of them were like, don't you be going out there and getting married? I'm like, oh, I'm 18. Like, no, you know? And so, um, yeah. And so, <laughs> um, so I get Loaded out up there. the truck and moved to Beverly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it literally. Cause I was coming from, I had lived in Orlando briefly, which is a huge city, but you know, mostly surrounded by cornfields. So, um, so I land on a Saturday and uh, the church was just starting up. It was a pioneer work and um, they were having a concert and uh, they were had just literally gotten to the building. Like this was the concert they were having before like their first service Sunday morning. So you know how that is with pioneering. Like everything's just very, um, especially back then, you know, like the flyers were like handwritten on like all the bright fluorescent colors, like fluorescent pink and fluorescent green. And, you know, so I show up and, and he takes me to Wendy's and he's like, well, we're going to go to a concert. I'm like, oh, cool. You know? So, but it was like a concert in the parking lot of a pioneer church, you know, of like, like 30 empty, um, hard folding chairs, you know? So, uh, what, you know, but I, it was cool, whatever. So we get there and, um, you know, I'm just in shock. The weather was so different because I was coming from Ohio in December to San Diego, you know, and, and the weather was just different. So we walk up to the concert and the church and everything. And there were some, you know, a couple visitors there from the neighborhood. And this girl walked up to me and 
that fear that I was telling you about that God really had um, set me free from, I felt it as this girl walked up. And do you remember that? She kind of yeah. like growled at me. It was and she very said, weird. She kind of like growled and she's like, how'd you get here? Why are you here? And I remember I was like, oh, like, I've only been here like two hours. <laughs> like, I remember thinking to myself, how in the world do you know this girl? Yeah, it was crazy. She ended up manifesting at the concert behind uh, the, the people that were at the concert. Uh, it was another church. I don't know who it was that had come and done the concert. Carson. But uh, uh, they, you know, were doing altar call and stuff. And she started manifesting. And they prayed for her. This chick was like on the ground, writhing around. So this is my first experience coming out. I'm coming from across the country. My only two sermons I ever had were the Holy Ghost and hell is real. And then I see this, you know, so, I mean, it was just <laughs> like, I was jumped in quick, yeah, really quick. Yeah. This girl, she had uh, demons and they're casting out these demons behind the props, behind the scenes after the altar calls, the song service is still praying and people, I mean, she manifested at the altar and they pulled it they didn't pull her, but they brought her back behind the curtain and they just continued to pray for her. And she was in a full manifest. <laughs> so that was, that was my first experience. And so anyhow, you know, as I began to come to church, um, it was very foreign to me to hear people, you know, it was just Nick, another Marine, the pastor and his family, and one of the uh, really young teenage girls from like the neighborhood that was coming. And that was it. That was the church. But I didn't see all that. All I saw was, like God, you know, like we were at church and it, like the size didn't matter to me because like people were speaking in tongues, which scared me at first. Cause I had never heard that, but I remember feeling like it just felt good, you know? And so even though, you know, this, there was the pastor's family, like three other people, I was being, God was doing like all this stuff in my heart and in my life. And, um, you know, I immediately began going on outreach and uh, I remember we were outreaching on base and this is how um, I really felt I needed to be delivered from smoking was um, I was witnessing to this group of Navy guys. We were on the base and there was like two guys and a girl and they were all smoking and um, I was witnessing to him and I was like, and God can set you free. God can deliver you from smoking. God can deliver you from drinking. But as soon as I said smoking, it hit me like you're not delivered. And so I remember, you know, I finished whatever I was saying. And it was that night I was like, I want to be prayed for. I want to be delivered from, from smoking. And so I, you know, um, ripped up all my cigarettes, you know, threw it and prayed for, and I never smoked, uh, you know, after that it was December, 1995. And then it was right after that, like probably not even a week later, huh? That I got filled with the Holy ghost. We were sitting on the pastor's couch and, um, the Marines that were coming had to drive back up to bait, you know, their base. Uh, it was a Sunday night after church. And um, I was like, I want to get filled with the Holy Ghost because, you know, during prayer, everybody was praying, you know, in tongues. But I was a little scared of it. But then I was like, I mean, everybody else is doing it. Like, that's not fair. They have it. And I don't, you know. And so I was remember sitting on the couch. And this was the second time that I had this kind Some of, of that holy stubbornness. It was just like, yeah, like, I, if it's going to help me, I want more. And so this was the second time something, you know, kind of uh, physical happened is they were praying for me. 
and I was sitting. And the minute I began speaking in tongues, do you remember we, we got hit with like a wind. And I remember I hit back on the couch and I was just speaking in tongues and I, like, I couldn't see like, not that I was blind. It wasn't a fear, but it was like, there was just nothing, but like just the Holy ghost. I, I don't even know how to explain it. And I can remember hearing the pastor like laughing and saying, that's the Holy ghost. That's the Holy ghost right there. And everybody was praying and so that was my experience. And I know that's not everybody's, but that was just mine because I think God, God often has to speak to me in a radical way because that's what gets my attention, you know? Wow. So, uh, so when you, uh, when you had this experience, you're, it's, it's all fresh, it's all new. You're kind of in a whole new environment all of a sudden. And, uh, so this is actually why I, I want to get people on outreach like as early as possible <laughs> because mm-hmm. your experience, you know, uh, dealing with other people that, that refined your, your need life. for God. Exactly. Yes. So yep. we'll, we'll put yep. up, put out a word to any pastors or ministry leaders. Don't, don't be shy to ask people to come with you on outreach. Like you need to outreach the next week, you know, with people yep. and yeah, sure. get them, get them working for God because, uh, it changes your whole perspective. And also I think it changes like your, your position. Like you, you, you don't view yourself as, as receiving, uh, in the church. I'm not just a recipient. I'm a participant. I'm part of what's happening here. I think that's really powerful. You make the church your own and your words speak life or death. The more words you begin to speak, for Jesus and about Jesus, you begin to create an atmosphere in your own soul and in your own spirit where you get more dominion. So especially as a new convert, the more that you're speaking about the things of God and speaking about Jesus, sharing that with other people, you're gaining dominion in your own your own soul and creating that climate and that atmosphere of dominion in your own life. Yeah. So okay, so you're you're part of this church and and he but uh, but Nick's Nick's about to be deployed to Japan. So you guys are just there for a short time, right? Right, right. So I had a uh, you know ticket, obviously a round trip ticket, and uh, you know we were talking like I, I didn't want to go home because I knew if I went home, I didn't have a church. I still had all my old friends and it would have been very easy just to slip back into, you know, cause that when you're, when you're first saved, you just have that fire, but you know, then you have to really begin to make decisions to live for God and without a solid church and solid Christian friends, that would have been very difficult. So we were just talking about it one night and um, I was like, I want to stay. And he was like, and even if I got a job, like even back then Southern California, it was just almost impossible to live in Southern California, you know, because the prices were so high. And so I was like, you know, what do we do? And he's like, well, if we get married, you could live on base housing and that's for free. So I was just like, okay. And then he just sat there and stared at me. Romance. And, well, it was like, well, you can tell him. Yeah. We're, we're just spitballing ideas. I mean, she wanted to stay, I'm leaving in like two weeks, she wanted to stay in Southern California. She wanted to be a part of the church. And so we're just sitting in my car outside of the pastor's house before I dropped her off and I started heading back. It was, I think it was after a Sunday night service or something, maybe a Wednesday night. And uh, we're like, man, I can't afford an apartment. I mean, even, you know, we're just kind of kicking ideas around. And I was like, man, if we got married, even 
you know, if we got married, this is the only way I could see it. If we got married, you got into base housing. That's the only way I could see it. And it wasn't like I was trying to propose, although I loved her and I wanted to marry her. But it, I mean, it wasn't like this top secret way of me dropping, you know, the question. Literally, we're just sitting there trying to figure out how can she stay in the church? And that came out as an idea, not even thinking about what I just said. And the car just went quiet. And I just looked over at her and I said, what, you want to get married? And she just like, are you asking? And it dawns on me, knucklehead. Yeah, actually I am. And so that that's our big romantic moment that our girls to this day pick on me about. <laughs> I got married to be able to stay in the fellowship. <laughs> I think it was a good decision overall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe it didn't work out the way that you had always dreamed, but, uh, Hey, it it was practical. Practically speaking, at least you had a place to stay. Yeah. I don't even really think I had any dreams about it. It was just like, yeah, I mean, so we got married and so, uh, we get married and the church happened to be in revival the week that, you know, we got married on a Sunday. And then that following week, uh, the church was it like a big Jesus people type of thing. Did they, did they do that? We actually, we did. We did a Sunday morning, you know, yeah, just how our fellowship does the, the Sunday morning weddings. And um, we had a lot of Marines come down. It was a Super Bowl Sunday. and uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, a lot of the Marines came wow. down, uh, and uh, came to our wedding. And um, there were several that got saved. It was a really good time. And uh, then... The, there was revival. So we came back the next night, you know, on Monday night and our pastor was like, what are you doing here? And we're like, it's, there's revival. Like, it's well, we wanted church. to come back. We got married Sunday morning. We <laughs> wanted to come back Sunday night. He forbid us yeah, he... to come back Sunday night. And I was like, that's so wrong. Why are you telling me not to come? <laughs> He's like, yeah. you guys so have things like, to do. <laughs> in our stubbornness, we're like, we'll be here Monday. We'll be here Monday. You're not going to yeah. tell us not to come to church. <laughs> So Monday, I, I didn't know who the I didn't know who this pastor was, you know, because we were so new. Um, and uh, he pulled me out and gave me a word, and he said, "You know, sister, you're called to be a pastor's wife." And I was just like, "What?" And so he said at that moment, he was like, "Oh man, I married the wrong girl because I'm not called." <laughs> what the heck did we just do? And so um, that was kind of, I think, the beginning of how the calling was first spoke upon our life. Um, yeah, was that way. And then, um, and then that night we had gone back to the hotel because it took us a few weeks to get into base housing. And I remember um, I still had my my ticket back home, and so I was like, you know, what do I do? And um, you know, because it was going to take a while to get into base housing, and I had my ticket to go back home. So I just made a decision. I just ripped it up and threw it away. And I was like, God's just going to make it work. And um, they said it was going to be two months before we got into base housing. And it was like two weeks, huh? They got they got quick. me quick and um, moved into base housing and had nothing. I had a blow up mattress. I didn't even have a blow up mattress at first. I just had a blanket. So I slept on the floor and I had my suitcase of clothes. And um, that was it. And then... Um, I got, you know, I was working, so I saved up some money and got a blow-up mattress. And I slept on a blow-up mattress and a blanket and a pillow and my suitcase of clothes for six months <laughs> until till Nick came home. Wow. So uh, I think it's it's really important at that moment to, to you know, share with people. Because I, I think a lot of times people come into 
churches or they see, you know, the way that God has blessed us over the years. Like, I, you know, we've been to your house and you guys have an awesome house and you guys have oh, blessing and God has helped you a lot, you know, and, and, you know, and think that, oh, these people don't know what it's like to struggle, you know, but, you know, when you think about a, a time like that in your life, when you like literally had nothing, but, uh, but you had Jesus and you were happy and, you know, and you had each other and that was enough, but, you know, it's not without like you said, it's not without a process. There's a, there's a, there was a time that, you know, you guys were scraping pennies together. And, uh, yeah, there was so, a time where we were digging through our couch cushions just to get like change together to buy a loaf of bread. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah there, yeah, but it didn't matter because we were saved. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and don't expect to have that same level of blessing on, you know, the first six months of salvation, like there, there's a process here. Yeah. I think God gives you what you can handle, you know? And I think as time goes on, yeah, definitely. There's, there's times of blessing and there's times of, of, you know, there's the mountaintops and there's the valleys and, you know, as time went on, we we've hit a lot of valleys. We've been in a lot of valleys, a lot of dark, dark, difficult times where, you know, you begin to question everything. And, um, you know, it's those times, those reference points that, that you have as, as new converts or just different things where you can't deny that God helped you then. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's going to help us now. And I think that's what Satan really tries to get us to forget that God's never changed. Yeah. Well, I wonder if we could maybe break out of just the timeline because um, I think we we covered that pretty well with with uh, with Nick's testimony, and maybe mm-hmm. what you what I'd like to hear about is some of those dark times, and maybe you could just jump through and and share with the audience some of the things that you've had to conquer and go through and come out the other side with a smile on your face. Sure. So, um, so yeah. So we got married, and uh, the church that we were in. Um, Unfortunately, the the pastor and his wife were not the kindest people, and I can confidently say this now as, you know, I've been saved almost 30 years. I'm heading towards my 50s. I learned how to be a pastor's wife by how I was treated there, and I don't mean that as it was a good example. It was... You were learning how, not what not to do. I was learning how to not make people feel the way that I felt. And so there's always good that comes out of hard times, you know? And so when you're going through those things, you're just, you know, confused and like, you know, you don't understand. But now as time has gone on, I've learned how to not make people feel because I don't want them to feel like I felt. So, you know, you got to backtrack a little um, so, you know, going through that wound of being feeling rejected by my mom, cause my mom had left. So now I get saved and I come out to a church and, um, without going into too much detail, because sometimes the past just needs to stay where it is, you know, but just very severely rejected by the pastor's wife there. Um, there was a lot, there was a lot. And, um, I would, I would just cry myself to sleep. God, what do I do? Cause Nick had already left for Japan. Now I was completely alone. 
in Southern California, no family, no friends. Um, there were, it was, it was just a really bad time during that time. And so it was during that time. I just, I really learned how to get close to Jesus in prayer. And, um, you know, I began to work and I still continued to come to church. And, um, like I said, there was a lot there. So that was kind of our first big kind of trial. When he came back from Japan, he was like, what do we do? You know? And so about two months before he came back from Japan. Um, so I was driving by myself, um, the two hour drive by myself to uh, Chula Vista and back Sunday morning, you know, Saturday, I'd come down for outreach, I drive back Sunday morning, I come back, you know, and then drive back Sunday night, drive down on Wednesday, it was a lot for a young, a young female by herself. And, um, you know, it's not safe, it's a border city. And, you know, you can imagine even back then, they would always warn military people get kidnapped on the border, especially young females. It's that's just something you have to be aware of there. So I'm doing all this by myself. And we had a sports car at the time. We had a Mustang 5.0 GT. It was all, you know, souped up and had a racing clutch in it. So, I mean, it was a hot car at the border for, you know, it was like a, a thief magnet, you know what I mean? So here I am making this drive by myself. So about two months before Nick came home, there was a church uh, up in Fullerton, which was about 20 minutes from the base. And uh, Pastor Jesse and Sylvia Dianda. So that's where when the Marines had duty, um, you can only go a certain amount of miles from the base when you have duty for the weekend. So they would go there because it was still within the mileage that they could go. So Nick said, it's not safe. I don't want you doing that drive. You know, plus the stuff that was going on. He was like, just start going to the Fullerton Church. And, uh, you know, I come back, we'll figure this out. So that's kind of how we got to Fullerton. And uh, so... Uh, we started going to the Fullerton Church, and it ended up being a huge blessing because um, Sylvia Dianda really filled in a lot of those holes that had been had been put in me by um, you know just older women and women that I looked up to that I, that should have been um, uh, caring and should have been an example. So Pastor Dianda and Sylvia really just um, man just welcomed us in and. Uh, and just really brought healing. Like it's because of the Deandas that we stayed in the fellowship for sure. 100% because we were at the point where we were like, maybe we should just find somewhere else to go, you know? And, um, but we didn't want to leave the fellowship because he had had such a radical experience in Jacksonville, Florida. It wasn't anything like what we had experienced in Chula Vista at the time. And so we knew that there were good churches out there. So we were like, maybe he can just finish out. He still had three more years left in the military. You know, maybe we can just finish that out. And we can move to Jacksonville and, you know, just start going to church there. You know, we didn't know. We were just young and we didn't know what to do. So when we started going to Fullerton, it was just, it was really redeeming. And um, had some great times there. Super great times. Yeah, and it was, it was you know, um, because we're not sharing and filling in all the details but it was a very, very difficult, dark time. Um, she's uprooted from Ohio, Midwest, plopped into Southern California as a teenager, um, dating a uh, recently converted rageaholic alcoholic myself. I get radically saved. She gets radically saved. So there's a radical shift right there uprooted from Ohio in Southern California. There's a radical shift. And then I leave, we get married and I leave six days later, we're married and six days later, I'm gone. And she's in this base housing by herself. And then she starts to deal with the very 
um, you know, rejection um, of the pastor's wife, a very strategic, uh, on purpose rejection of her. Why? I, I don't know. Um, but, and so then I'm in, you know, so I'm in, I'm in Japan, Far East Japan, and uh, there's no cell phones, there's no internet per se, you know, texting or anything like that. And so it was very, a lot of hard, difficult times. But like, one thing I want to highlight is what she said that, that, you know, the listeners don't miss is your relationship with God is so key, so key. If you have a close relationship with God, you can get through anything, mm -hmm. anything, any dark time, any difficult time, things that don't make sense when you are close to God. And that's, I think that's what we both had. We just had Jesus. There is no church over in, in Japan. There's no pastor in Japan. There's no Bible study leader. I mean, I'm a new convert. I'm only saved six months. She's only saved about three. We're both new converts, but we both had Jesus and we loved Jesus. We had our Bible and prayer and we were good. It sounds like the, the devil was doing all that he could to take you out before, you know, you could even get established. For sure. For sure. So we get to Fullerton and God really, um, you know, just did healing work there. And, um, you know, the Deandas were just for us, just really great people. And um, that was the first church we got uh, where we first got sent out. It was out of Fullerton and we got sent into Inglewood, California. And um, but it was about that time, maybe about a year before that, uh, a couple of years before that we were, you know, deciding we wanted to start our family. And so I, I didn't think we would have any issues, you know. And, but I just wasn't getting pregnant and wasn't getting pregnant and wasn't. And so, um, that started us on a, a 13 year journey of, of infertility and loss on that journey. And, um, you know, that took us through some, some very dark places as well. And, um, uh, so, you know, we get to Inglewood and we were there about three years and then, um, the Deandas were going to go, um, assist for pastor Richard Romero and Mesa. So Pastor Campbell graciously took us over. Pastor DeAnda released us to Chandler, and that was in 2003. And that's when uh, Pastor Campbell took us over and um, came in. And, you know, we went into Phoenix and uh, pioneered there for about three years. While we were there, I did, um, uh, you know, I had uh, two pregnancy losses there. And so that was very difficult because one of them was a miscarriage. One was an eptopic pregnancy where, you know, I had to go to the hospital. It was an emergency type of situation. So struggling to get pregnant. When we were in, in Southern California, I went through probably a year of really intense infertility treatments where I was going every single morning and getting um, an ultrasound and getting a shot. Um, just, I mean, it was intense and it was expensive and nothing, nothing. And then we moved to Phoenix. I actually, when we moved, I was pregnant and uh, miscarried when we got there. And then um, in 2005, had the uh, the ectopic pregnancy. So it was like even it was such a struggle to get pregnant. And then when I did, I had never carried past like the the eight week mark. And so um, you know, it was just a lot of a lot of just um, you know, because my friends they're all now having kids. And now their kids are starting to be five, six, seven years old, you know, and here people asking us, when are you guys going to have kids? You know, you get tired of answering the question. Like, I don't ask people that just because I know how it felt for me, because I mean, how many times can you say like, well, when God, you know, when God gives us, you know, oh, well, 
And then I had one person actually tell me like, you know, it's biblical to have kids, right? You shouldn't be waiting this long. It's, it's biblical for you to have kids. Like having no clue, you know, what we were going through and um, just the loss that we had experienced. And so, um, so I rushed through. So from Phoenix, we ended up going to Texas, taking over a church there. And um, I remember the pastor's okay. wife. Can, huh? can, before you before you jump into that, I, I just want to, um, for those who uh, have not experienced what you guys have been through, um, mm-hmm. and maybe for those who are around or nearby someone who's in that particular struggle, mm-hmm. can you describe what it was like uh, for for the miscarriages and the emergency epitopic pregnancy, like, like the feelings, um, the loss that you experienced? Can you just take a minute to to describe what that was like? So for the first two, um, the the miscarriage and the eptopic pregnancy, I didn't have any children. So I didn't know really what I was, I mean, I knew I was losing a baby, but I didn't know what exactly I was losing because I wasn't a mom yet. And um, with with the eptopic pregnancy, that was an emergency. I had to go to the emergency room, immediate surgery. so that, you know, was was a, a fear attached to that, you know, and I remember uh, I remember Miss Connie actually and Pastor Campbell calling me and her praying for me, you know, because there, there's a fear when they begin to speak over you, you can die if you don't have the surgery immediately, you, you're going to bleed out. You know, there's there's fear attached. So, you know, those two things. But then, you know, after it was all done, I remember just that feeling of um, rejection again, you know, like it's just every all the trials in my life always seem to come back to you're not good enough and you're not ever going because uh you know my dream growing up was to have like a normal family like all you know like all the people other people you would see you know and that just it didn't happen and then you know so i was like when i get married you know we're not gonna divorce and we're gonna you know have a happy home and holidays are gonna be happy and you know i'm gonna have I wanted five kids, you know, and, um, you know, they're going to just have the best life, you know, just all of that. And, um, so then when I began to have the struggle and then began to have the losses, it really, there was a part of me that definitely, um, closed up. So, you know, like I said, all my friends are having kids, people asking, when are you going to have kids? Why are you guys waiting? You know, you're, you're getting older. You've been married a long time. Why aren't you having kids? You know? So, um, I really began to kind of keep that just very, very private to myself, you know, just that, that kind of pain, kind of like the feeling of left out, like I'm not part of the club, you know, maybe like I'm not, I'm not a, a, a real woman because I haven't had kids and other people have, and you know how, how large, you know, our churches can be, you're constantly going to baby showers and constantly, you know, and then when I became a pastor's wife, I'm constantly giving baby showers for people in the church and, you know, and you're people, watching people's kids in every nursery people. service. Exactly. And then people, you know, and, and some of the churches that we had pastor, they get mad at you. Well, you don't even have kids. You can't tell me, you know, and it's like you have to just absorb those things because e- either God's going to do it or he's not. And that was something I had to really begin to start to kind of tell you, you know, cause obviously we had been prayed for by many people. We'd been going through infertility. You know, I had to begin to 
kind of, and I never wanted to give up that hope, but I had to kind of start thinking to myself as I started heading towards 30, maybe I'm not ever going to have kids. And I guess for me, it was like, I mean, I wanted, I wanted to have children for so many reasons, but I wanted to be a mom that I knew I wanted when I was growing up. And I remember always thinking to myself, God, if you'll give me kids, I'll be the mom that I always wanted for myself. You know what I mean? I'll be, I'll have the life for my kids that I always wanted for myself. And, um, so I guess it was maybe like, like a dream kind of dying inside of me. Like I'm not going to be able to, I guess maybe in a way it was kind of like redeeming my own childhood. You know what I mean? Like to be able to break that curse in our family and, you know, um, go down a different path, show, show my family and show the world a different path, you know? Do you think that, uh, that you guys paid a price in your relationship going through that, that 13 year difficulty? I don't, I don't necessarily really at the time, you know, like we just didn't really talk about it. Did we, it was just yeah. kind of like, we didn't really talk about it. We kind of didn't acknowledge it. We just stayed really busy with church. We stayed really busy with people. We stayed really busy with doing stuff for others, you know, um, just having people over and on holidays when people didn't have anywhere to go, they would come to my house. And, you know, I think we just stayed busy, honestly, but it was in my private, you know, personal prayer time and, you know, my, my morning prayers and, you know, at night when, you know, you're by yourself and just, you know, it was those times I think that um, just that brokenness, you know, I, I could be vulnerable with God and broken, but, you know, um, you know, so I, I think definitely we didn't really talk much about it until we were in Texas. And um, so when we came to a place where we're just like, God, if you never give us children, you're still good. And because I was 31, so he would have been 32, 33, what, 34? About 34. So, I mean, I got married and I was 18, you know, so we'd been married, yeah, 13 years, you know, so... Yeah. So Getting we close came to, to half that your life. Place. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I had a doctor there in Texas. And I remember when we took over the church, the pastor's wife that we were taking over from, she had said, um, uh, oh, you guys don't have any kids. And I was like, no, not yet. You know, that was always. And she's like, well, if you're going to have kids, this is the place because this church is fertile because there was a lot of big, big families. And I remember just thinking like, oh, OK, you know, and that's where I had my kids. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I started, I, you know, we moved and, uh, took over the church and, uh, you know, just got all my doctors and stuff. You know, when you move, you get new doctors. And, um, so when I got my doctor, my female doctor, he was just going over my history and, and everything. And, uh, he was like, you know, he could see, you know, the whole history and the whole fertility journey and everything. And, uh, he said, um, you know, I'm looking over all of your, your, medical records, there was nothing wrong with Nick and there was nothing wrong physically with me. There was nothing that they could physically find. And I had every test done. I mean, both of us, there was nothing wrong. So he ran a, a blood work test and he said, you know, your hormones are a little off. He's like, but that's very normal for women. He said, especially as you hit your thirties, he's like, can I try something and just see? 
I was like, sure, you know, so he, he said, there's this medication you can take. It's very, um, very low dose. It's not even like a fertility drug. It just kind of gets your hormones more imbalanced. And he said, can we just try that and see what happens? And I was like, sure, you know, really kind of not with that much faith, you know, because where we were in Wichita Falls, um, to go through fertility treatments, you would have had to go into Dallas, which was two hours away. I wasn't about to do that every day. So to me, I was just like, it's going to have to be you, God, because, you know, and so that actually happened that same week we were having revival with Pastor Oscar before. And um, like I said, I've been prayed for by many people. And uh, so at the end of the revival, he you know, called people for prayer. And there was a couple in our church that was struggling with infertility as well. And uh, they went up for prayer. And so he said, does anybody else here want to have a baby? So I was like, you know, we do. And so, you know, I went up there and he prayed for me and that was in February. And then I uh, began, you know, so all of that was working together. So March, I found out I was pregnant. So about six weeks later, I found out I was pregnant and um, we didn't tell anybody, right? I mean, we told my family, but we didn't tell the church or anything because I desperately wanted to have faith, but there was that fear that something was going to go wrong. And um, I remember like each week for me, it was a victory. Like it was another like brick being taken down, you know, like when I got past the eight week mark, cause that was the scary one for me. And then I he headed into nine weeks and then 10 weeks. And then, you know, every week that went by, it was a victory and they were watching me very closely and um, had no problems. I had besides throwing up all the time, which, is very healthy actually when you're pregnant because it's your hormones are doing what they're supposed to do, but had, you know, no issues had just, you know, uh, really great pregnancy and just so many, so many good memories. And then it was just like that day, you know, that to have Briella, it was December 1st, 2009. And it was like the moment she came out, it was like, God kicked that final brick down and said, that's what I'll do that's what I'll do if you stay faithful and she's healthy and she's perfect. And God blessed us with her, but it took a long time for her to get here. And she's a miracle and I'm forever grateful yeah. for her. So that was Briella and we started the journey of just motherhood and um, two years after I had her. So, during that time, I, I, I didn't mention, but my sister had passed away during uh, the time we were in Phoenix, and um, that was very difficult. She um, was sick, and that was very difficult. My sister passed away, and so um, she was my only sibling, and uh, my dad had uh, given her a kidney, and, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, things just didn't work out, and uh, she passed away in 2004. And uh, so it was just, you know, by then God had completely healed my relationship with my mom and, um, you know, just my, I love them. Uh, just, you met them, Adam. They're uh, just really great people. They're blessing to my family. And uh, so my dad became, you know, began to come out and visit us for holidays and stuff because he had no one left, you know. And uh, so uh, him and Briella, that was his little, his best friend. He called her his little peanut. And, uh, so uh, me and my dad were close. He was probably one of my best friends. To me, my dad was Superman, you know, like 
I finally had my baby girl, you know, like we were in Texas, we were pastoring a good church, you know, and it was just, we bought our first house. And um, it was just like one of those times that was just like when things feel good, you know, like kind of everything feels good at once. And then, um, and then my dad suddenly passed away and it was crushing to me. It was absolutely crushing because there was no, there was you, you weren't prepared for that at all. No, no. He had come out for Thanksgiving and, um, and then January I had called the house and, uh, a woman answered. My dad lived alone and a woman answered and you could hear noise and stuff in the background. And I was like, where's my dad? Where's my dad? And she was like, who is that? You know, anyhow. She, so she told me she had actually, uh, she was a bus driver and the day before she was driving by my dad's house and she um, saw him laying in his driveway. So she had pulled over and he said, according to her, he said he has slipped and fallen on the ice. And so she called her husband who lived down the road and they helped him up and, and got him back into his house. And her husband said, um, you know, Mr. Squires, it looks like you're, you're having a heart attack. And he was like, no, 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 I just fell. I just fell. And he said, you know, the neighbor had said, I had a heart attack. It looks like, you know, can I take you, just take you to, you know, the hospital just to get you checked. And he said, no, 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 you know. So they left him. But she said in between her bus route, she just really felt like she needed to check on him to make sure he was okay. So when she, she came, it was, you know, about 1030 in the morning and uh, he didn't answer the door. And she knew he was home. And so she, she called the police and the police came and kicked in the door and, um, you know, they had found him. So he was in, in cardiac arrest. And, um, so, you know, I, I called my dad, we talked pretty much every day, huh? Because he wanted to talk to his little peanut every day, even though she was only two, that was, you know, so uh, I was calling and, uh, this woman answered the phone. So it was just like, that crushing feeling came back like another loss, another rejection, you know? And, um, I didn't know where my dad was in eternity. We had obviously witnessed him for years. When he came out to visit, he would come to church and, you know, he'd clap and you'll participate, but he had never to me made a public profession. So one, it was shocking to me that Superman died, you know, like, I, you know, it was just shocking to me and, um, so hard, so difficult. And, uh, I remember about, I don't know, maybe about six weeks after he had passed away. Um, you know, I was just crying every day. And, uh, I remember calling pastor Campbell and pastor Campbell telling me, you know, maybe the struggle you had with infertility was for this time because you have a two-year-old daughter who you have to get up every day and take care of. And he's like, two-year-olds are fun. You know, they just, the, the things they get into and the things they do is a distraction, you know? And I remember thinking like, you know, maybe that is why, you know, I don't know. And, um, you know, but it was a comfort to me just to think like, you know, that, um, but I remember, you know, one of my closest, closest best friends is Daphne Dillard. And I remember I was crying one day and, and talking to her. And she said, because I was just tormented, like, where is my dad? You know, I don't know. I don't have assurance that he made heaven his home. And she said, Ryan, there's no way you can know. You don't know if in his, you know, last moments he could have even cried out, you know, God, please help me. 
or because my dad knew, you know, Christianity. And um, she said, you don't know. But she said, the, the thing you need to tell yourself is that when you do find out, it's going to be Jesus who's telling you. What, what greater comfort is that? Who else better to tell you where your dad is? Because he'll know how to, how to tell you, you know? And I remember that gave me peace. It really did. I want to believe he's in heaven. I prayed for him for years and, um, and I hold on to that hope. And when I do find out it's going to be my savior who tells me and he'll know how to tell me because he made me. So, um, but during that time, it was just very difficult, crying all the time. And I remember very clearly I was, um, standing at my sink, my kitchen sink, washing dishes, looking out the window, just crying, you know, and, and praying, God, you know, please let my dad be in heaven. And, you know, just God, please help me out of this, this pit. You know, I was just, just this pit. And, um, and so I remember praying that prayer and, you know, a few weeks went by and then that familiar sickness hit me one morning. It was probably about two weeks after I had said that prayer, about three weeks after I had said that prayer. And it was the middle of March again. And that familiar sickness hit and um, I took a test and I was pregnant again with, and that was with Eliana. So um, that's how God chose to to respond to my brokenness. He knew my heart's desire was to have more kids. But let me back up a little. About three months right before my dad passed away, Oscar and Linda had come and spent Christmas with us. And before he left, he said, do you want more kids? And I said, yeah, we do. And he said, let me pray for you. So he prayed for me on Christmas. It was like Christmas day or Christmas Eve. Some, you know, yeah, Christmas Eve, he prayed for me. And then, you know, my dad passed away. And then in March, uh, I found out I was pregnant again with Eliana. And so that was, you know, I know God responds differently to everybody when they go through things, but that was how God chose to respond to me and my pain because he knew that that would speak to me more than anything. Like I hear you, I see you. And I know this is going to bring joy to your life and to your family. And it's going to pull you out because I wasn't having kids on my own without God's intervention. It just, it wasn't happening and it, it just wasn't. And so God is the one who opened my womb. And, and then Eliana, same thing, you know, I had, um, so I got pregnant with her in March as well. And, um, same thing, great pregnancy, puking the whole time. And, um, so December 17th, little Eliana came along and that was how God chose to respond to that brokenness in my life as he gave us just another pure joy miracle in our life. And, um, and so those are our two daughters that we have. And, um, you know, four months later, we turned, well, we turned the church over and four months later moved here to Cincinnati. Yeah. And I, I know from listening to uh, Nick's testimony again, that he, that, that was in response to your dad passing away and there was a there you guys had to deal with um the what a, the estate and uh, yeah. Yeah. there was a lot of legal mm -hmm. legal stuff that you had to go through there too yep. um yeah so, i had a lawyer i want to i want to hear about um that move and and you know the last um you was it 10 years you guys have been in in ohio now yes and, Yes. So yeah, we're we're, we're gonna we're gonna dive into that, but uh, uh, we're we're already past a, the one hour and twenty minutes mark here, and we have been very generous with our uh, with our non premium subscribers. We're gonna save the rest of this conversation until after the break. So uh, we do want to encourage you to go ahead and subscribe if you want to hear the rest of this powerful testimony from 
Ryan Half and her husband Nick. Uh, uh, it, the uh, all all of the funds are going toward world evangelism. So uh, hit that button to to subscribe, and uh, we're gonna say goodbye to our free listeners at this point. But uh, if you are a premium subscriber, like I'm back right after the break. And uh, like this part two. Thanks. You're my some hero, and I sing this song. 